Hi, this is Lee Goldberg, and you're listening to another thrill-packed, exciting, erotic episode of Rider Types. Welcome to Rider Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and this is the show for crime and mystery fiction lovers. I have three great guests for you today from three different countries, so that's fun. You know, even if we can't go anywhere these days, we can travel through the beautiful illusion of podcasting and books. I mean, books are like magical little vacations too, right? Yeah. Well, on today's show, I get some constructive criticism about writer types. Concept is uh, worthless. And I get an honest evaluation of me as a host. For the love of God, this is just a, a miserable person. Like, give, give him some peace. And you get the duet you've been wanting for years, but never knew you wanted. You and J-Lo, I mean, yeah, you're right. There's nothing else, right? Well, first, I want to thank everyone who's already read my latest book, Two in the Head. The reviews are positive, and so far, nobody's gotten angry that I used their names in the book. Not yet, anyway. This one is available now from Down and Out Books, along with a whole host of my other 26 novels. But enough about me. Let's get right to our first author. First up is author Sebastian Fitzek, all the way from Berlin, Germany. Sebastian is a wildly popular writer of thrillers in his home country, and he is about to hit the U.S. with a whole lot of books, including his latest, The Package. This new one follows Emma, the only survivor of a notorious serial killer, and when she kindly takes in a package for a neighbor, she has no idea what she's let into her life. Sebastian has fans already in the States, fans like Karen Slaughter and Harlan Coben, and I spoke to him from his home in Berlin. Thank you for joining me, Sebastian. I mean, this is uh, very exciting. My first conversation with someone in Germany. Oh, I'm happy. Thank you very much. We don't tend to get many German novels translated here in America. I have to think we're missing out on a treasure trove of great books, right? <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I mean, you're blessed and your country is such an amount of great authors. Authors were really inspired me and thousands of European and German authors to start writing. So um, put it this way, you, you could give it a try, but I, you don't necessarily uh, wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> so there are many days that I feel like we have too many crime writers. <laughs> <laughs> to me, uh, you uh, invented uh, the thriller genre, maybe not the crime novel genre, which uh, in Germany we consider to to be a little more British, but thrillers uh, in, in all kind of media. I mean, it's, if it's on the big screen or it's, or it's in a book, you, you're ruling um, the world. So um, it's an honor for, for an Euro European, for a German author to be published in the U.S. Are there some American authors that, that really inspired you and, and made you say, yes, this is the kind of book that I love to read, therefore I want to write? Well, everything started with so many uh, of my colleagues uh, that will agree. Everything started, I'm a child of the 80s uh, with Stephen King, of course. Um, I, I wanted to read all of his novels. But later on, I studied law, for example. I read all the lawyer stuff <laughs> wow. with John Grisham, of course. And I was a big fan of Michael Crichton. And then I discovered uh, Holland Coben, um, Karen Slaughter. Or, or I, I mean, sir, I, I forget. I think I now for, forgot uh, others of great 
thriller authors. Well, you certainly have uh, picked up the mantle of, of the, the great thriller w- with a great hook because uh, your latest book, The Package, and yeah. along with, with really all of your books, you know, Passenger 23, Seat 7A, both of which, which are getting an American release later this year, which is exciting. Yeah. But all of these stories really start with that really intriguing, uh, inciting incident, that great hook. Mm-hmm. Now, are you the kind of writer who you get this great hook in your mind as an idea, and then you have to sort of figure out how to write yourself out of this little situation. <laughs> I think it's a good explanation. Um, uh, I get my ideas out of my um, everyday life, which isn't so weird uh, as you could <laughs> think if you read my novels. No, but it's, for example, with a package, I, I really was at home and I live in a very small street for uh, over 10 years now. And I think um, that I know every neighbor. But when the uh, postman, the mailman, he asked me, um, could you please take this package for a neighbor? Then I took a look at the address and the name on the package didn't tell me anything. So I was thinking, okay, this could be a weird package or a weird neighbor or just a weird story I'm in. Uh, So uh, I started thinking uh, about this what if question, what if this would happening in a novel? And the second question is always, who are the characters in the situation? And it's an idea, it pops into my head and I really have to, uh, to get rid of it. Yeah, well, that certainly is the the challenge for writing a, a book like this. Sometimes I know I've had that spark of an idea, and then it ends up being I, I get lost in the like, yeah. oh my gosh, how do I? I wish I was smart enough to be able to figure out the ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I, I sometimes I do have um, very. Um, triggering um, beginnings, but I, I don't have a clue why this could happen to anybody or what, what would be the, the, the story you, uh, you haven't heard twice or twice before. So I usually start writing when I, I, when I meet in my fantasy the main characters, um, which I want to go on a long journey with. Right. Yeah, that's that's the key. Is if, if you're if you've got a great concept but you don't have the characters to back it up, your book's going to fall flat. That's right. That's what I had to learn uh, because sometimes it's so fascinating. You you have a what if question uh, for a th- thriller, but as you said, when the characters uh, they don't have a story to tell, they're not interesting. Uh, the whole concept is uh, worthless. Yeah. Well, now the package doesn't necessarily take a, a, a straight line in the narrative. It, it jumps back and forth in time. It, you've, mm-hmm. you've got a, it's it's kind of a tricky uh, plot that you've woven here. W- what was appealing to you about jumping around like that, or was it just something that really suited Emma's kind of fractured psyche in this book? I think this goes with the with the main character because um, I was thinking uh, about. Emma, who is a psychiatrist, and she had something very bad what was happening to her in a hotel room. And um, now she discovers all the symptoms of paranoia at um, herself. So but she, she can't uh, cure herself. Even she is um, a psychiatrist. So she she really locks her up in um, in, in a house in a very small street like, like me, and she doesn't want to anybody to come in and she well everything is is going to be delivered to her so i had to jump back and forth in time because i have had to um develop and to explain what happened to her why is she she's so troubled and paranoid why is she hiding in her 
um, own room. What, what is her, her background? And I like the unsecure main characters when you are really not sure uh, about her, and she, uh, and she isn't sure about herself. So um, I, I think, well, this the, the story made it necessary to have those time shifts. Yeah, I mean, do you find that happens a lot where you start learning more about your character as you're sort of developing them and then it, it's actually the character that kind of dictates how the narrative is laid out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I started my writing career, I heard a lot from other authors who told me they, they don't have their characters under control. They're just watching them, what they do, and their characters surprise them. And I thought this was blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then <laughs> I discovered for myself, yeah, that's right. Um, so after 60, 70 pages, I'm I'm more like a visitor. I, I'm, and I'm, I'm watching my characters, uh, uh, and I'm really excited what they do and i'm also frightened because sometimes i'm, I'm asking myself wh wh where do they go w will this ever be a good ending <laughs> because this isn't the story anymore that i was thinking about uh, do you ever get uh, annoyed at your main characters for taking you <laughs> down a road that, that you didn't necessarily want to go <laughs> Oh yeah, actually, I did with the with the next book coming up, Passenger Twenty Three, which w was taking place uh, on a cruise ship. Uh, Twenty three passengers on average uh, going um, missing every year, and the ship owners they tend to to say this is suicide, but there are some cases which can't be suicide. So I wrote this book um, about somebody who they were telling the police, "Oh, this was suicide," but then the person appears again. On the, on the ship and nobody knows where she has been for such a long time. And a psychiatrist has only six days to uh, solve the riddle and to start a therapy um, uh, with this, this little girl which is, isn't talking anymore. So when I was on page 60 and the ship uh, wanted to go the, on the Titanic route from Southampton to New York, the main character said, I don't want to be on the ship anymore. And he had very, very good reasons to do it. <laughs> and he, for example, he said, I'm staying here in Southampton and the clinic here is better. And I'm going, she's going to have a, three, a treatment here. Why should I go on a ship with her? But I didn't want to write a book about a clinic in Southampton. I wanted to um, discover <laughs> the world of the cruise ship beneath the official decks. So, the only thing I could do is, um, well, start all over again. Delete everything that I wrote it uh, because um, I I can't force the figure to do what I want. And this was really annoying me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, is there a uniquely German sensibility to crime novels from, from your country? Or is this something, are you creating your own German thriller? It's very interesting that I, um, I I wasn't thinking about this, and and really to be honest, I don't consider myself to be a German author. I, I'm I'm a born Berliner, and born Berliners, we always felt since we were three or four years old that we are something different and better than the rest of Germany. So um, <laughs> I consider myself to be a Berlin author, and a lot of my novels take place in Berlin, like like um, the package, but. It's really, really interesting that when I started uh, to publish my novels in 2006 in Germany, 
a lot of readers and a lot of publishers in Germany said, oh, we don't want the German crime stuff. Uh, we want to read UK or English thrillers. <laughs> like I would say to the US listener uh, and readership, uh, please give it a try. I'm sorry I'm German, but more Berlin. <laughs> give it a try anyway. <laughs> well, okay. Before I let you go, the thing that I always want to know from international writers do you think there's anything in your style that's missing or anything that changes when it gets translated into English? Oh, I have to be honest, as you just heard, I'm I'm not a native speaker. I'm searching for words every time and I'm not <laughs> I'm I, I I'm not able to judge um, a translation. I really have to to leave this by the experts. But there's one really funny story um, which I found out that there wasn't something missing in the translation. When my first book therapy, the Italian version had one chapter more, which we found <laughs> out. <laughs> and well, the translator thought this could help the book, but unfortunately, he gave away the clue of the book in the middle of the book so um oh, no. uh, because we were thinking why wasn't such a success in italy the first book and we found out well maybe <laughs> it was the third chapter which shouldn't be in there so this was kind of weird and funny and and then um we changed the translator <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, don't rehire that person wow you know <laughs> Next up is Isabella Maldonado. Her latest book, The Cipher, is about an FBI agent, Nina Guerrera, and is the start of a new series. Isabella has a long history herself in law enforcement, including being a patrol officer, hostage negotiator, district station commander, and is the commander of Special Investigations and Forensic Division. Her previous books have won her awards and a dedicated fan base. We recorded on a Saturday afternoon, and I started off by asking her what she was working on that weekend. What am I working on right now? I'm actually doing the final touches on the next book, the sequel to The Cipher. So hopefully everybody will be happy to know that there's more to the story. Yes. Oh, that's exciting. Always always good to uh, keep tapping away, even on the weekends, right? Yeah. You know, there really is no day off. <laughs> Can you please explain this to my wife? <laughs> I know. I know. I'm still getting my husband to understand, so I don't know if I'll have any luck. The the thing I find hardest to explain to people who who don't write is that oftentimes the most important part of the writing process is when I'm just sitting and staring into space. And and that's actually writing. You, You know what? You're right. And one of the things that I like to do sometimes, you know, staring at a blank screen is an invitation to disaster. So I actually have, I call them think spots around the house. I'll go to like a a corner of the house where I have a chair and some writing paper because, you know, sometimes my brain will work better when I have a pen in hand. I go old school. Other times, you know, I'll go to a different room in the house if I'm, you know, I need a different sort of stream of thought. Well, I think that's that's a smart way to do it because you're right. There's nothing more intimidating than the blank page. Yep. (laughs) So let's talk about the cipher. The cipher uh, introduces us to a new character, Nina Guerrera. And though you had three books previously in the Detective Cruise series about a homicide detective, Mm -hmm. Nina is an FBI agent and on paper anyway, seems a lot more like yourself. I mean, your own resume in law enforcement is quite impressive. 
but I want to know why didn't you start out writing an FBI agent? Why did you wait this long? My background is in like uh, local law enforcement, so you know I I wanted to focus on that to begin with, and and I had this interest in kind of the the local feel of a city that you get. And I love Phoenix, and and the first series, the Cruise series, is set in Phoenix. And Phoenix is, I I moved to Phoenix after I retired from my career in law enforcement. I'm from the East Coast, but I moved out West, and I just fell in love with the vibe, and I really wanted to explore that. And I thought, you know, really, there's not a lot, not a lot of people are writing about Phoenix, and I just wanted to do something completely different. Yeah, it's it's amazing how a, a place can inspire a story more often, I think, than people realize. It really can, and especially if, if it's a place that has just a really cool and sort of unique vibe all of it, all its own. And then when I went to write the cipher, though, I really wanted to go back to where I was born and raised, and where I had you know my law enforcement career, which is in the D.C. metro area. And so I wanted to, to base Nina out of that area. So it's a, it's a completely different feel. Well, I want to talk about character introductions because I mm-hmm. thought the cipher started phenomenally for me. Like if, if, if I taught, I could use these first two chapters as examples of character introductions. I, I knew everything I needed to know about Nina in both past and present delivered in entertaining scenes that were not just, you know, information dumps. My question when I was reading that, analyzing it from a writer's point of view, is when, when you were writing it, did you start with these scenes and have these fully formed? Or is that something that you had to go back after you sort of knew a little bit more about her? And then did those early chapters come later in the writing? Yes, they, they came later in the writing. I, I didn't have that introductory chapter when I started the story. I knew I needed to introduce her and do it in a way that the reader would both bond with her, but understand where she comes from. I mean, she's a deeply flawed person. She has a lot of, I mean, she has enough baggage to fill 10 suitcases. (laughs) And uh, I mean, she has a lot going on, but, but to find a way to do that, and to show her strength at the same time, you know, um, to make you understand that while she has had a very traumatic childhood, She's not this beaten down person, you know, she's, right. she's feisty and, and she's fought her whole life. She's scratched and clawed for everything she's gotten. Nothing has been handed to her, quite the contrary. And I wanted you to, to understand because you would need to, to go through what she goes through in the cipher. You need to sort of understand and believe right away that she's the kind of person who was capable of doing that because most people would find that way too daunting. Right. Well, like you say, I mean, Nina has this, uh, has to deal with this dark presence from her past. As someone with a career in law enforcement, uh, you might have made some enemies along the way. I mean, are the dangers of the past a concern for any career law enforcement person for, you know, for the rest of your life? (laughs) Well, yeah, to an extent, yes. I mean, you know, people can always come out of the woodwork people that you've had to dealt with. When you when you have a career in law enforcement, you deal with the worst kind of people. And as a matter of fact, a part of it is it's a challenge for me. And I remember when I when I first got my gun and badge and first got on the department, um, as a uh, young idealistic, you know, 22 year old, 
young lady, I, I remember seeing some of, some of the grizzled old veterans on the department. Yeah. And, you know, and I remember telling myself, even at that point, I'm like, you know, if I ever get so cynical that I can't trust anybody, it's time to give up my gun and badge. Yeah. You know, and I, I never allow that to happen. But you have to make an effort not to because you're constantly being exposed to really bad people. And um, pretty much everyone that you, you talk to is, is working an angle, trying to manipulate some. Everybody's lying. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God. Part of what I had to do in my job was to notice the good things that were going on and, you know, try to focus on that because there's too much of the other stuff around you. Tell me what can be more crushing to you is is when a, a bad guy gets away or when a story just is not working out for you <laughs> what hurts your soul more <laughs> well actually I, this, this is going to sound crazy but but really it's when a story isn't working out and, uh-huh. and here's and it, there's several reasons for that one is one of the first things that they taught us in the police academy was that you know justice wears a blindfold for a reason and that bizarre things happen in court. And later on, when I was an instructor at the police academy and I was teaching new recruits, this was one of the lessons I try to just drill home to them was sometimes you make a good case and you make a good arrest and you know the guy did it and he goes to court and then for whatever reason, the case gets thrown out and you see somebody who got away with it. And I used to tell them, I'm like, you cannot let that upset you and and make you so cynical that you don't want to continue doing your job. One of the reasons that I write fiction as opposed to true crime, because several people have asked me, they're like, hey, with your background, why don't you write true crime? I mean, all the cops would talk to you and you could totally (laughs) do it. But but there's a reason why. And that is because of the fact that I witnessed true crime and people got away with it. and, And sometimes really bad people just managed to skate. And so I write fiction because I want to write the stories the way they should turn out instead of the way they do turn out. Uh-huh. And then, of course, when it doesn't work out, you have no one to blame but your own imagination. Correct. <laughs> for Correct. not cooperating. Exactly. So that, that's why it's particularly frustrating for me when the story isn't working out. Because I'm like, this should work out. This has to make some sort of, this has to resonate. It has to make some sort of sense. Yeah. Well, that's the power of, of being an author is getting yes. to control that world. So my 14-year-old daughter is really into watching the show 24 right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She's totally captivated by that world and is even talking about maybe wanting to be a CIA agent when she grows up. I I feel like I need to have her talk to you and get a a ground-level view of what it's like to, uh, you know, live a life in in law enforcement and, and I mean, is working for, you know, one of the, the so-called alphabet agencies as exciting as it sounds, or is it really more, can it be a grind? It, it, it can certainly be a grind. And I can give you a couple of examples. As a matter of fact, there was a, um, a young lady who, who came and she wanted to talk to me because she wanted to be an FBI agent. She just wanted my insight. First of all, I told her, hey, look, the FBI is recruiting right now. So now's a really good time. And they're particularly looking for tech people. And, and this young lady, she was 18 and she wanted to go into computer science. I'm like, hey, good. That's the perfect thing if you, know, if you want to do that. But 
I did tell her this. I said, get ready to be the most boring person on campus. And I'm like, why? <laughs> or she, or she said, why? And I said, well, you know what? They do a background check on you that goes through, you know, your whole life. So, so do all the police agencies. And, you know, I had to go through the same thing. And then the other thing is I remember when I was on the force, one of the guys who, because we were in the D.C. area, he decided that he wanted to become an FBI agent. So he left the police and went to the FBI. He came back and he's like, oh, my gosh, this was such a mistake. I mean, I thought I would be doing all these cool things. And it's like, (laughs) no. And the same thing happened with someone who went to join the Secret Service. He came back because it's like, he's like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm checking passports and looking at counterfeit money to see if it's real. You know, I think he had in his mind that he was going to be flinging himself in front of the president, you know, know, it's so not everything that you think, but I think all jobs are like that to a certain extent. Uh, Well, writing certainly is. She's getting a a front row view of of the writing world, not being quite (laughs) what is portrayed in the movies and everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what was, oh, the show Castle, where you get to like, Go out right. with the police and help them solve crime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not exactly, right? <laughs> no. Well, uh, this has been great. I, and, uh, you know, as you said, Nina is back later this year in A Different Dawn. And uh, the other exciting news, Jennifer Lopez is attached oh. to play Nina in an adaptation of The Cypher. That is quite amazing. 2021 turning out to be a big year for you. Really huge. I could not believe it. I was so excited. JLo read the book and was like, this is it. It was just so exciting. And knowing that, I mean, I can't tell you what it's like when some mega, mega international superstar reads your book and falls in love with it. I have to pinch myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, now you've been on writer types. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of all downhill from here, right? (laughs) Well, but yeah, that's it. It's I've reached the pinnacle now. So what else is there? Yeah. You, you, and J Lo. I mean, yeah, you're right. There's nothing else, right? No. <laughs> yeah, it's not the first time we've been uh, mentioned in the same sentence. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> All right, it's time for a question. This is a new segment where I ask a specific question I want to know the answer to, and I invite some author friends along to answer it for me. So today's question is, what are some long-running series that keep up the quality? And frankly, how do you do that? So to answer this question, I am joined by Nick Petrie, author of the Peter Ash series, the latest of which, The Breakers, is out now. And also Jason Pinter, author of the Rachel Marin thrillers, the second of which, A Stranger at the Door, is out now as well. Welcome to you both. Well, thanks, thanks so much for having, having us. Well, now, before we get to the big question, uh, you guys both write series. Uh, Nick, you're six books in, and Jason, you're only two in your current series, but you've had longer running series in the past. Nick, let, let's start with you. I want to know, when you wrote your first Peter Ash book, were you already looking ahead at a character that could sustain for 10, 20 books down the line? Not at all. I, honestly, I never thought that first book would get published. I'd written three books I couldn't get published before that. I had no reason to think that the book that became The Drifter would ever get published. I, and I didn't really conceive of that as a series. I, I, I'd written standalones before, but I, I must have been thinking about it in the back of my head because it really the character has all that DNA in it. You know, I, I, it boggles my mind 
when I talk to writers who say, oh, I've, I've got the first 10 books outlined, <laughs> um, even though they haven't finished the first one. I mean, that just, that just blows my mind. Well, now, Jason, when you came up with Rachel, I mean, in, in deciding to dig in and, and take the time and the effort that it takes to, to write a book, were you setting out to write a series? Or when Rachel first came to you and her story, did it start as a standalone? Was it always going to be a series? I, I had originally, I did want it to be a series. I think sort of like uh, like Nick said, that part isn't always necessarily up to you. It's up to sort of, you know, when I when I submission with my agent, I envisioned the first book, Hideaway, to be the first book in a series. Um, so when my agent shopped around Hideaway, I did have uh, basically pitches for books two and three uh, to show editors that I had a sense of where it would go. So I really always did see it as a series. I mean, one of the tricky things is, if your series is going to be sort of like a serial versus a standalone, um, right. you know, I sort of look at like, you know, I say like the Jack Reacher books as kind of standalones. You can pick up any book, you can pick up book one or book, you know, 18, and you don't really need to know what's going on and what's happened in the past versus a serial where the earlier books do very much inform the later books. And maybe you can read them as a standalone, but it probably is a richer experience if you've read the earlier ones first. Yeah. Well, Let's get into some of these long-running series that that have gotten it right, because when I think of something that's going to go for a dozen or two dozen books, that just seems like a daunting mountain to climb. But this is something that goes all the way back to, you know, Agatha Christie and Hercule Poirot and things like that. So, uh, Nick, what are your what are some of your picks for the long-running series that have kept up the quality over that amount of books? Well, I keep thinking about uh, Lawrence Block's uh, Matthew Scudder books. Yeah. These were written from uh, the early 80s. Uh, I think the most recent one was 2017. And I believe there are 17 or 18 books in the series. And uh, to me, they just only get better as they go. And it is a, it's a really rich experience. And the, the, the first ones are, you know, kind of excellent workmanlike kind of mysteries, the only the only thing about them that that makes them not shine so brightly is that the the books after that just become better and better and better. Um, so it's you know I, I think that's a really hard thing to do. And and back to Jason's point, I I think the you know the series without the evolution of the character is is also a really hard thing to do. I think people oh, yeah. think of that as as somehow easier. I'm not sure that it is because you do have to keep it fresh and interesting every time. And it's, you know, in a way, when, when the character is evolving, it lets those books, you know, lets your narrative evolve. It lets the kinds of stories you're telling evolve. You know, I think about Robert Crace, too, who's, that, that series has evolved yeah. a lot over mm -hmm. time. And, and he's, a, again, a spectacular writer. I'm a total Robert Crace fanboy. But like, if you look at the first one and, and you look at the most recent, they are quite different in terms of tone and the the way he tells stories. But again, there's 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 not a bad book in there. There's not even a mediocre book in there. <laughs> and and I, I think that's a rare thing. Yeah. Well, Jason, you already mentioned uh, Reacher. And as we're talking about these characters that evolve and, and, and age over time, you're going to talk about things that are into the 20 or 24th book, a character is going to age. So I, I, I always think of someone like V.I. Warshawski, Sarah Paretsky's character, who is has aged along with the books. So w what are some of your picks for the series that uh, that get it right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I have to look back at the, at the very first books that started my love of crime fiction, and that was Michael Connolly, the Harry Bosch books. I mean, I, yeah. I've been a, Con- a Connolly fan probably since around the time that the Black Echo first came out. You know, you know, in the in the first book, you learn all about Bosch's backstory. You learn about his time in Vietnam. You learn about his sort of like fractured family life, but. The, he, he does something marvelous, which I think is, is as hard as anything, which is both making each book able to be a standalone, but then also continuing to evolve the Bosch character. And if you look at some of the later Bosch novels, you know, he is aging Harry Bosch. I'm not sure if it's in real time, but certainly close to because I do think at this point, I think Bosch was in his like mid to late 30s in, in the first book. And now he's, I think, in his 60s. Um, and Bosch is dealing with his mortality. You know, he's dealing with, with you know, potentially cancer. And so I, I think that takes a great amount of talent to both keep each book fresh, but also pay it off for people that have been reading a long time. Or also, you know, I also look at, um, you know, Ian Rankin's uh, Inspector Rebus series. Right. It, it boggles my mind how you can keep a series running, you know, especially now that I've just, I've just put up book two, to keep it going 20, 20 25 plus books and not only keep the character interesting, but also to, as a writer too, that's really hard. Like you, you want to keep, if you're going to devote however many months or years to writing a book, you want to be entertained by it. So if you can't create a character that's going to interest you, you're certainly not going to interest the reader. So to be able to do that 20, 25 books into me is just, it's, it's a breathtaking achievement. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think if, if taken from a writer's perspective, right, the idea of, um, you know, it, it takes, what, four, six, eight hours to read one of these books, depending on how fast you read. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, Jason, but it takes me eight or 10 or 12 months to write one of these books. And it, <laughs> oh, yeah. it is a, a lot of time to spend with, you know, the same cast of characters. Although, I mean, again, hopefully the books are different enough. There's got to be some sort of an interesting uh, sort of trick or game or technique or something to be 10 books in or 15 books in or 20 books in and to still find something fascinating about the character and and their reactions and their their take on the world well and i think you guys have hit on another thing too is like as characters deepen and get richer i think it also reflects the fact that if you've been writing you know 20 24 books you've been at it for a long time there's no way that you're the same writer you were when you began and that's got to creep onto the page right Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I want to, I, I love what Nick is saying so much. And I was, I was literally just thinking, I think when you first sent this email out, this podcast, I was thinking about Robert Crace and how actually my, my, I think my favorite Crace novel is LA Requiem, which is not an Elvis Cole novel, but it's a Joe Pike novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think Elvis Cole is, is kind of like relegated to secondary status, but I think up until that point, Joe Pike was sort of like, you know, the, the speak softly and carry a big stick character. Um, <laughs> but in L.A. Requiem, he really goes into Pike's backstory and you learn about that. And it's just so fascinating because you already have the Elvis Cole universe and this just totally opens it up. And Connolly, too, I think one of the best things he did, especially maybe sort of in the second half of his career, is bring in these secondary characters like Mickey Haller in Lincoln Lawyer or, or, or uh, Renee Ballard in uh, uh, The Late Ship. And these are characters that are in Harry Bosch's world. You know, Mickey Haller is, uh, I believe, Bosch's uh, stepbrother, um, and Renee Ballard is sort of an, another cop. It's just a much more enriching feeling for the reader, and I think from a writing perspective, keeps it fresh. So you're not just literally just writing the same book over and over again for 30 years. Well, I know uh, let's, you guys wanted to maybe mention a couple others. I mean, I'm, I'm going to throw in for, uh, I think, the Dave Robichaux novels, James Lee Burke. Uh, you know, people keep reviewing those books as they come out. And, and he, how many times is that 
the series has gotten, oh, this is the best one yet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and then, and dipping back in time a little bit. I mean, I'm a, a huge uh, Parker fan, the, the Richard Stark, you know, Donald Westlake books. And Nick, I know you wanted to mention one of, one of those uh, more sort of classic series. Oh, well, sure. The John D. McDonald books, uh, the Travis McGee books by John D. McDonald to me are, and, and that's one of those that you can really read them in any order until he gets to the end when he's again, kind of feeling his, his age. And, and those mm -hmm. are, those books are, are dated. This is Florida, uh, South Florida in the, you know, kind of early sixties through the probably mid seventies. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing about, um, about the Parker books, he had sort of a second life. Yeah. Um, in, in, at the very end of Westlake's career, he wrote six of those books. Yeah. After a long break. Yeah. After a long, long break. And to me, those are, they're so much richer and so much better than the first ones. The first ones are really kind of bare bones, but the second ones are, carry so much more weight with just very stripped down, straightforward prose. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, is anyone else you uh, think people ought to be really clued into? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think she's she's sort of taken a little bit of a break to write some amazing standalones, but Laura Lippman's, you know, the Tess Monahan series. You know, I remember yeah. lo loving those things. She's, she's, I don't know if she's in the 20s, but certainly maybe 10 or 15 or something. Uh, Walter Mosley's the, the Easy Rollins series. I remember oh, like yeah. Devil in the Blue Dress. And I, I was lucky enough that when I was in college, I took a class on the 20th century crime novel and we read Black Betty, which was just absolutely brilliant. And I hadn't read Mosley up until that point. And not only is, is the series great, but I think it's an important series. I think it's, you know, one of the few sort of modern black mystery writers who has a long running series. You know, you look at sort of back at like Langston, you know, Chester Himes, but in terms of the last like 40 years, uh, and Mosley is one of the, the only ones and it's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I'd seen even like John Sanford, the Lucas Davenport series has, has held up really well. Craig Johnson, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Longmire series. Yeah. Um, there, there are tons of them, you know, but it's funny. Some of my favorite ones are ones that didn't go that long. I look, you know, I think, I still think one of my favorite series ever is, uh, Dennis Lehane's Kenzie, uh, Gennaro series. Um, oh yeah. Which I think only went six books. It went five books. Then he took like a 10-year break and wrote uh, Moonlight Mile. You know, and that's funny because that's a series that probably couldn't have been a 2025 book series because of it kept a certain realism where every every book sort of bore the scars from the previous book. Yeah. Uh, if, if something terrible happened to Kenzie and Gennaro, which it always did, um, they couldn't sort of wash it off in the next book. So it's the kind of thing where like, you couldn't go 20, 25 books because those characters would have, would have either been dead or, or long gone insane. <laughs> that, that's exact, exactly how I feel about uh, Ken Bruins, uh, Jack Taylor oh series. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> talk, talk about a tortured, a tortured protagonist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause we, all these series that we talk about, I, I'll freely admit, I, I haven't read every single one of, even in some of the series that I love, like there's still some Parker books I haven't read. Jack Taylor's one where I've read everything. I think he's up to 15 or 16 now. And I've I've read them all, and yeah, you get to a point where it's like, oh my gosh, can we just end this to give him a break? For the love of God, this is just a a miserable person. Like, give give him some peace. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish you guys both luck on your series. I hope you each get to twenty five books, and uh, I'll look forward to talking to you when you cross that threshold. Hey, your lips to readers' ears. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that I'll make it there, but uh, a guy can hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
My final guest is Fiona King Foster, author of the debut novel, The Captive. As you'll hear, she made no plans to write a thriller when this idea popped up, but critics and readers agree she hit it out of the park on her first try. I spoke with Fiona from her home up in Canada. Well, Fiona, welcome to Writer Types. Uh, we're here to talk about your debut novel, The Captive. So first off, congratulations. Debuts are so exciting. We always love a debut author. Thank you, Eric. I'm excited too. Now, this uh, it takes place in in sort of undefined uh, new world that's very rural, cut off from mainstream society. And I saw that you described sort of where you grew up in Canada as very rural, but now you live in Toronto. So why do you think you went back to these more desolate areas uh, instead of the city for your debut novel? Um, that's a good question. I I think to some extent my imagination just still lives there. Um, <laughs> I grew up there and, and it's, it's kind of my original vocabulary, you know, to uh, think of the woods and the the empty places. And also, as you said, I grew up in a very rural place. I live in a very urban place now. I think about that tension a lot. It comes up a lot in in my life. It comes up a lot in the world around me. It's something that's just on my mind, kind of what it means to be from one world and living in another one, because they do feel really different to me. Well, hopefully where you grew up is not quite as harrowing as the world you describe in The Captive. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. These are not instances drawn directly from your childhood. <laughs> no, no, thank goodness. No, no, I, I had a lovely childhood, uh, but definitely in the woods. And a lot of the details, a lot of the details of the natural world in the captive are definitely taken from life. Well, and you don't specifically say that we're in Canada or we're in, in the U.S. or anything like that. What What was the reasoning behind keeping it in this kind of undefined world? Truthfully, that's just kind of how it came to me. Um I can't really explain it other than um, as I was writing this world, it felt to me like it wasn't specifically either of those countries. Um, And I'm a citizen of both. My family is American and Canadian. But this world just, it felt like it could be either. It felt like it could be neither. Um, It's definitely feels like it's the West. It's the kind of the Western hemisphere. It's an English speaking place. It has a lot in common with Canada and with the United States. But um, I don't know. It's it's a bit of a fantasy. Yeah, that's the hardest thing about talking about your own writing, isn't it? Because sometimes the the true answer is like, I don't know. It just came to me that way. <laughs> it's, it's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I think for, sometimes for readers, it it can be unsatisfying when when especially you know you meet a reader face to face and they ask you something very specific that they have an idea about. Oh, this must have you know come from a personal experience or something, and you have to say, nope, sorry, I just made it up. Yep, it's <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> Well, certainly with the with the kind of political backdrop in the novel, that absolutely comes from the United States and from Canada. Um, the kind of secessionist po- political rhetoric, that's something that's um, obviously alive and well. When I was researching that part of it, I was drawing a lot from the U.S. There's certainly more to draw on in terms of actual events and movements, but it's a real thing here too. So there as well, it just felt like a hybrid. Well, the captive was pitched to me as a feminist Western noir. Does that <laughs> sound right to you? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I take issue with the idea of feminism being a genre, but <laughs> um, <laughs> absolutely. I, I was thinking very much of Western influences. And then as the kind of moral ambiguity and the questions of um, corruption and 
crumbling society entered in that felt more noir. And then, you know, Winter's Bone by Daniel Woodrell is, I think, a clear uh, influence. It certainly, mm. it certainly absolutely was an influence. And that's pretty seminal as a, as a rural noir text. So it's coming from both places. I was thinking of, of noirs like that. And I was also thinking of Westerns, you know, like, I mean, 310 to Yuma comes to mind, Elmore Leonard's story about, uh, which yeah. is also kind of a, a family person, a parent transporting a, a fugitive to justice. Yeah, it, yeah, it's all in there. Well, and you also, you took the story on the road, which is a plot point that I think I find myself sort of backing away from because I, I feel like, oh, my last three books were all road trips. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's such a great narrative spine to hang your story on, isn't it? It gives you a lot right out the gate. Um, it gives you a lot of movement and um, options for suspense just structurally, which this book is very lean. There's not a lot of side stories or side characters. It's a pretty one-line adventure story. And um, a road adventure fits that to me. I liked that it would, it would just keep it really, really minimal, um, really forward-moving. And I, I wanted that kind of leanness. There's just something about uh, taking your characters on a journey where you've got, you know, the, the end of the journey is looming. You've got, it's not a ticking clock necessarily, but you you sort you can see over the horizon where your story is going. And it's all about, you know, the trials and tribulations on the way. And of course, the, the big question of, are they even going to make it? You know, <laughs> Totally, totally. And I, I, I uh, what appealed to me was having a kind of, a, that question be really simple. Like, will they make it? Will Brooke accomplish her, her goal? then the complexity and the meat is allowed to kind of grow up in other places. It, it's not a convoluted plot. It's not a, um, a complex question. It's really a, will they make it or will they not make it? Um, will they succeed or will they fail? And then the characters themselves and the environment and, and what they're going through on a more personal, private level can can hold the substance. You know, for a debut story, is this uh, tale the kind of thing that's been brewing inside you for years? No, you know, I cannot tell you how unexpected this was for me. Absolutely, completely outside the box of what I had written before. I had no intentions of writing a book like this. And then it just arrived. And uh, it, it kept me so entertained that I kept working on it. And then, you know, the next thing I knew, I was at the end. Wow. Yeah. So, so you're not uh, you're not planting your flag firmly on the feminist Western noir <laughs> hill. <laughs> the, well, the, next, you know, the next one might be totally different. It might be. If so far, it's not totally different. Um, what I learned writing the captive is how much I love writing action. I had no idea. I had never even tried before, and then that aspect of this novel came in early on. I was just having so much fun, and um, I want to keep doing that. So. Definitely, I enjoyed the plot-driven, the action, the the adventure, and uh, I want to keep doing that. I, I think my next book might not be quite so violent. I could use a break. <laughs> I could use a break from that. Well, and oftentimes thrillers uh, can be looked down upon, and yeah. I, I saw that you work for a national literacy organization mm -hmm. up there in Canada. I mean, are you? an omnivorous reader and, and a champion of us sort of lowly genre writers? <laughs> I am now. 
full disclosure, I wasn't always. I did do an MFA and um, coming out of that experience, I had a lot of, I'll just say snobbery um, uh-huh. around uh, literature, high and low. Moving on through the years, whatever comes to me to read that is good is fine by me. You know, it could be good experimental literature. It could be a good thriller. It could be a good comic book. I hope that I have stripped away a lot of my notions about what boxes good writing has to fit into. And uh, I've, I've been reading more genre fiction since I found out that that's what I was doing because I didn't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the book, the book sold to uh, publishers and, and they said, you know, they were saying thriller and crime fiction and uh, I was like, what? Oh, okay. So I should I should read more of that stuff. And I started reading more of it and I'm having a great time and I'm learning all kinds of tropes that I had, you know, repeated without even realizing what I was doing. It's such a rich and pervasive um, mode of storytelling that it had influenced me without me even really understanding. It's, wow. it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a that's great the... one I just read was um, Long Bright River by Liz Moore. Have you read that one? Oh no, I've I've heard good things about that. It's terrific. It's a cop story, which you know, I I if I hadn't heard how great it was, I, it's not really my. See, I said I had was behind putting things in boxes, but I don't think of it as my thing. <laughs> but it's fantastic. Yeah, highly recommend. Well, there you go. That's a, a great lesson uh, for all the MFA students <laughs> out there. Don't go getting notions. Don't get notions. Just just read, read what's good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's the best advice. You have a unique position here where you have a Canadian publisher and a U.S. publisher. They have two different versions of the cover art. So I want Mm -hmm. you to be honest here. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer the Canadian cover or the U.S. cover? Uh, You know what? I am currently biased towards the U.S. cover because I haven't actually held a Canadian book in my hands yet. Oh. So... Right now, I'm I'm gonna swing U.S. Yeah. Just because just it's, it's staring you in the face. They They're are so they are different. Both <laughs> um, but I've gotten a lot of good feedback about the U.S. cover, so I think uh, Echo Echo knew what they were doing with that. Excellent. Well, uh, you know, after a debut with great reviews, uh, uh, do you ba- get to bask in it all, or is it straight back to work? Oh, for heaven's sakes, no! I am homeschooling two small children right now. <laughs> 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 There's no basking. <laughs> Well, if that episode doesn't make you want to run out to a bookstore, I don't know what will. I'll be back again with three more great authors and a special guest co-host next time. Until then, you can find me at ericbeatner.com or on Twitter at Eric Beatner. The show is on Twitter at WriterTypes, and we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast to get each new episode as soon as it comes out. Plus, it I don't know, probably makes us look good to the folks at Apple or Google or wherever you get your podcasts and We all know how important it is that giant tech companies think your tiny niche podcast is cool and connecting with listeners, right? So until next time, stay safe, keep wearing your mask, and read a good book. Mm